Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening and God bless. Our passage for today comes from Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 through 12 and verse 16 through 18. Listen to what God is saying. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea, during the rule of King Herod, the Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, where is this newborn king of the Jews? We've seen the star in the east, and we've come to honor him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. He gathered all the chief priests and the legal experts and asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what the prophet wrote. You, Bethlehem, land of Judea, by no means are you least amongst the rulers of Judea, uh, Judah, because from you will come one who governs, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and found out from them the time where the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me so that I might too may go and honor him. When they heard the king, they went and looked. The star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. Falling to their knees, they honored him. Then they opened their treasure chest and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. When Herod knew the Magi had fooled him, he grew very angry. He sent soldiers to kill all of the children in Bethlehem and in all the surrounding territory who were two years old and younger, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. This fulfilled the words spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and much grieving. Rachel weeped, reaping for her children, and she did not want to be comforted, because they were no more. May the Lord add a blessing to the hearing, reading, and understanding of his holy word. Amen. Good morning again. You stepped in a few minutes late and you didn't catch it. My name uh, is Emily and you can use the pronouns she and her to talk about me. Um, I am the pastor here at Urban Village Church Hyde Park Woodlawn, um, but I serve in ministry alongside many folks who you see up front and many people who you don't see but um, help us do what we do and be who we are and I'm so glad to be able to worship with you today. Please join me in a word of prayer. God, we give you thanks for the gift that it is to come together um, in the middle 
um, of this morning um, here and to, to reflect and sit in the space of your spirit, um, to lean in close and see what she has to whisper to us. And so we ask that you would open our ears, open our hearts, open our imaginations to receive that word, um, that it might challenge us, that it might comfort us, that it might um, cast a new vision for who we ought to be as your people in this world. We lift this up to you with gratitude and trust in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Earlier uh, this year, I think I may have mentioned this book before, I read a book uh, by this guy named Gavin De Becker called The Gift of Fear. And I was intrigued to learn more about Gavin De Becker after his philosophy, or, and his philosophy after hearing um, that he was the lead uh, of the company that put together Jeff Bezos' security team. Um, and so true to its title, the primary idea behind the book is that fear is a gift. And in general, his point is that fear is our subconscious, kind of telling us to stay alert, uh, but so often we've been taught to sort of override our senses um, for the sake of others' comfort and because we don't want to risk looking foolish or paranoid. Uh, but fear, De Becker says, is one of the primary ways that we can predict violence, actually. And another key way of predicting violence and violent acts, he says, might go against uh, some of what our gut instincts would tell us. Um, whenever we hear about someone committing a terrible and violent act, more often than not, the narrative around this person is something like they're a monster, right? Or that, uh, that there must be some kind of almost otherworldly or extraordinary quality about that person that would make them do such a terrible thing. We say that theirs was a senseless act of violence, that they were unpredictable and irrational. And we say these things, and we think this way, because we want to put as much distance between ourselves and that terrible person and their horrible act. But to do this, De Becker says, is to discount and dismiss some incredibly important clues about how and where that person and people like them might commit their next act. So in order to understand these things, we must understand why, he says, and understanding why requires something that most of us are loath to do, especially when it comes to people who do terrible things. Empathize. We must empathize with the monster in order to understand what drives them, where they might strike next, and how to stop them. But how do you empathize with people like that, right? Well, he would say you pull back the lens and look at what's happening around them as a whole. So in our passage for today, we stand in the presence of the monster of Jesus' day, King Herod, the Great. And he sits in this seat of power, and he's willing to do anything that will secure his influence and position. He's anxious, fearful, and hungry. And then there are the Magi, right? These nameless strangers and aliens who have come a great distance, arriving in Jerusalem, the center of political and religious power, the obvious birthplace for this next king of the Jews, right, that they have divined from this new star shining in the sky, and they come prepared to do homage, to bring gifts fit for a king. Which king? They have no idea, and neither does Herod, and that is a big, big, one might say huge problem. This in itself feels like enough political drama, right? But of course, Jerusalem, even with all of its political scheming, exists inside of a much bigger, much more anxious, fearful, and hungry political container, empire. Rome presented a vision. Caesar would conquer the world, not in the name of the world, but in the name of peace. And this peace was achieved through victory in war, and it was sustained by Roman military. After nearly 200 years of constant war, not unlike our own country's history, actually, fear and violence became the very air that Romans breathed. 
For them, the strategy for peace was less about an absence of war than it was about having beaten others down. Their senses were dulled, and the difference between war and peace had stopped existing at all. After generations of violence, simply no longer having the will to resist was what settled for a kind of social and political definition of peace. Now, the Roman Empire was pretty much at the peak of its power at the point of history in which Jesus was born, and there were two ways in particular that Rome kept things on lockdown. The first was by cultivating what Dr. Emily Towns, the professor of womanist ethics and dean at Vanderbilt Divinity School, called a fantastic hegemonic imagination. The fantastic hegemonic imagination that empire conjures up and cultivates is an imagination that caricatures and pillages all peoples, she says. Our thoughts, our culture, our religion, our isness. And long before there was such an impressive phrase as fantastic hegemonic imagination to use to describe such widespread social gaslighting, Rome was doing it. Right? Infusing society with a constant and underlying sense of fear and anxiety that just couldn't be placed. It was everywhere and it was nowhere. They did this by talking a lot about peace and law and order. Peace, they said, was only made possible by an ever-present and large military. And so this peace was really ongoing low-key war. Government, military, police was everywhere, in every hood, on every block, supplemented by a kind of private police force that worked for their local governor, a.k.a. King Herod. And this brings me to the second way that Rome maintained its power, colonization. Rome realized that they could be much more effective in keeping power if they invited a few locals to enjoy a few spoonfuls of it themselves. And so now you have Herod, the point person and local curator of that fantastic hegemonic imagination who kept his people, the Jewish population, in check. And so now, through a somewhat, somewhat more empathetic lens, the man whose reign of terror seems impenetrable has now become perhaps a man who was just as frightened, just as unsure, just as anxious as the people he is terrorizing maybe with just a bit more food on his plate and a few finer clothes. And so this second week of our sermon series, we ask, do you see what Herod sees? This, of course, does not make what happens next any more palatable. The announcement from the wise men is political dynamite for Herod. While Jesus is the true king of the Jews in the line of David, as the author of Matthew takes great care to sketch out, Herod is an imposter, a usurper, and he knows it. And so all of his deepest insecurities and fears bubble up over the top. And when King Herod is frightened, our passage says, all of Jerusalem was frightened with him. As anyone who is a parent with a penchant for taking out their rage on their children knows, when they get upset, you get afraid. Herod calls together the chief priests and the scribes of the people, his advisory council, the Sanhedrin, and they, along with the Pharisees and Sadducees, are members of the governing classes in alliance with Rome and Rome's representatives. And so now we see just how deep the spiritual cancer of corruption had festered. They are all just as terrified by this news of a newborn king, and so no one seems to bat an eye when Herod, in his scheming, frightened, insecure state, puts out a hit on a toddler, as the Reverend Nadia Boltzweber puts it, Already in his infancy, oppression and violence and terror have touched Jesus' life. But then, if he really is to be God with us, Emmanuel, that sounds about right. After all, he is with us, especially 
where the pain is. With his family's flight to Egypt, Jesus joins the company of all who are hunted, homeless, migrants, or refugees. Fun fact, 43.7 million people worldwide are now migrants. We can no longer think of ones such as these without seeing something of their faces that resemble Jesus, right? This event of state-sponsored terror is memorialized by the church with a title. There's a name for what happened. It's called the Slaughter of Innocents. And it wouldn't it be nice if that was then and this is now, relegated to the annals of a more savage time in human history. But of course, if we are honest with ourselves, we, wish, we would confess that this is actually a recurring reality in the world that we know, right? Human history is a slaughter of innocents. I could talk about Sandy Hook and babies snatched at borders. I could conjure up the sham verdict following Emmett Till's torturous murder and Trayvon's threatening hoodie. There are too many names, too many innocents to count. I have not even scratched the surface, and you know this. The story of Herod and infanticide is about a God who entered our world as it actually is, and not a world that is viewed through a soft filter lens offered by Hallmark. We've often been conditioned to behave as though Jesus is only interested in saving and loving a romanticized version of ourselves or an idealized version of our mess of a world, singing songs about kings and drummers at his birth, trading in the, peace, the Prince of Peace for a saccharine sweet serenity. Maybe it's an attempt to escape the Herods in the world around us or in ourselves, because of course at times we are in our own way, Herod too. God's love is too real though too true, too gritty, to enter a world that does not exist, even though this is often how we treat Jesus, as if we could shelter him from this reality. But if you listen closely, and like a lady baby gaga, baby lady gaga, <laughs> you might hear Jesus babble, I was born this way. He was born this way, with a target on his back. As true then, as it is for far too many young men and boys among us today. At the risk of a liturgical spoiler alert, I'll make a note that the charge which is eventually placed on Jesus' head at his end will be what the wise men actually divined at the beginning, king of the Jews. These circumstances of state-sponsored violence at the point of Jesus' birth is only the beginning of a long shadow that extends to the point of his death on a cross, also an instrument of state-sponsored violence. But we've lost our way if we interpret Advent waiting and the story of God coming down as a getaway vehicle to escape our difficult realities, right? We've cheapened it. Because Advent is the lens through which these difficult realities that we face, that we are trying to avoid or trying to figure out what to do with, that's when these difficult realities are given meaning. Drowning in fear and anxiety, overcome by oppression and depression, disoriented with no one pointing which way is up, the people of Jesus' time, and maybe our time too, are left twisting in the wind. They go with what they know, and they go with the flow, which means fighting for scraps and trying to stay on the top of the pile, or at least not end up at the bottom, soul-sick and knowing it, but not knowing what it is or how to get out of it all. This is the world that Jesus was born into. This is the world that God enters into today. Not to make it go away, so much as to help us make a way, maybe even make it new. The story of Emmanuel, of God with us, is as much about comfort and joy as it is about anguish and despair. 
And so having a little Herod figurine take up space alongside our singing angels and shepherds and our nativity scenes might remind us, actually, where to turn when things take a terrible turn, right? When we read the stories like the one that, that, that I read uh, about Max and Tino Webb, a young man who had moved from Englewood to Rogers Park to escape his violence-soaked neighborhood only to be gunned down at a Northside Redline stop earlier this week. Like, when I speak with our dear Lucille on the phone on her own Advent journey, waiting and seeking and searching at Northwestern Hospital, trying desperately not to drown in the powerful resurgence of her long battle with deep depression, which many of us have heard about before. We need a God who can help us make a way through circumstances like these, who can help us make meaning in the midst of this mess of a world, this mess of ourselves. We need a peace that surpasses understanding, not a new and funky rendition of Carol of the Bells. And maybe that's what Herod needed too. And so as we meditate on this second week of Advent with its subversive and threatening call to peace in a world at war with itself, what we are invited to remember amidst our expectant waiting is not just that God chose to enter a time as violent and faithless as ours is today, that is true, but we're also um, called to remember that the light and life which came to the world through Jesus cannot, will not, and shall not be overcome, that as the Apostle Paul said so many years later, neither death nor life, not angels or rulers, not things present or future, powers, height or depth, or anything else that is created will be able to separate us from the love and peace of God that is in Christ Jesus. We are reminded that this is what God brought, what God brings to us today. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you come to us, that you come and dwell among us that you offer us a peace that not only surpasses understanding, but feels incredibly impossible in a world that is so full of violence and chaos and spiritual disorientation. We thank you, God, that you dwell among us and that you remind us every day, and especially during this season, that you are Emmanuel, that you are with us, all of us, all with all of who we are, that you love us, that you hold us, and you help us to make a way in a world that seems so full of confusing paths. We thank you for this, and we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.